For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. We've been on this 10-chapter journey with Jesus heading down toward Jerusalem. The, the last 10 chapters in Luke we've studied. And now, finally, we make it. The king comes to his capital city of Jerusalem. He comes to the final week of his life, the week that is the most important week in the history of the human race. He's coming to do what everybody seems to be certain that he's going to do, which is to set up his kingdom. However, people continue to misunderstand what kind of king he is and what kind of kingdom he's setting up. And so that's why, as he's, before he leaves Jericho, remember we left him in Jericho with Zacchaeus last week and the blind guy that he healed and many other people in this, this procession that's marching toward Jerusalem for Passover. He's there and he tells them one more parable before he leaves to enter into Jerusalem. It says, while they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem and because the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. Yeah, when they saw, you know, they had previously in Jesus' life tried to put a crown on him and make him king. They thought, who better to overthrow the Romans than this guy right here? He can feed 15 to 20,000 people with a few loaves of bread and fish. He's, he can raise people from the dead. He, he claims to have living water and you'll never get thirsty again. I mean, this guy would be, he can heal people. What an awesome king. Rome would stand no match for this guy. And so they're expecting him to show up in Jerusalem, to set up his kingdom, to throw off Rome. And so Jesus is explaining to them, that's not the way it's going to be. At least not yet. He said, a man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. And so in this parable, Jesus is obviously the man of noble birth, as noble as it gets, God the Son. He went to a distant country to be appointed king or to receive a kingdom to himself, literally, and then to return. And so what he's saying is that I'm going to go away for a while, but I am going to come back as king. It says, so he called 10 of his servants and gave them 10 minas. A mina was like a big chunk of silver, okay? Worth about three months' wages. He says, put this money to work until I come back. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. We protest. Well, of course, he was made king, however, and returned home. The kingship of Christ is not up for a vote. It's going to happen. And in this parable, you basically have two groups of people. You've got the servants and you've got the subjects. And he's going to deal with both of these groups in order when he comes back. And when it says he gave them 10 minas and said, put this money to work, what is he talking about? Well, what he's saying is that he gives his, his servants, Christians, he gives them resources. They're his and he says, I want you to do something with this. I want you to put it to work. And obviously, I want you to put it to work in my, on my behalf, in my name. I want you to do with this money what you would think I would want you to do with it. And so this, what could they represent? It could represent intelligence and education. You know, some people have more intelligence than others. others some people might have intelligence but not access to education. Were you able to, to hone your mental abilities? Were you able to read some of the greatest minds, to sit under teachers that can help explain things, to develop the mind that God has given you? That's a gift from God. I hope you realize that. Your intelligence and your education opportunities, those are gifts from God. What about your health or your strength? Uh, including beauty, um, including power. Including, I mean, a lot of people don't have health. 
They don't have a lot of these things, but some people do. Charisma, beauty, personality, you know, winsomeness, the ability to draw people, the ability to, you know, get along with people, to influence people. Some people have more of that than other people. It's not dealt out in equal measures. There's wealth and opportunity. Some people, there's a great disparity in wealth. Some have a lot more than others. You know, living in this country, we've got a lot more access to wealth and opportunities. That's not an accident. God is sovereign over when people come into history and where they're born, and that includes you. You ever wonder why you were born when and where you were? God, God appointed that. And spiritual gifts. It says once you become a Christian, you're given spiritual gifts, and it's, you're given some at the moment you become a Christian. It's possible you can get more along the way. And all of these resources, these are, these are things that God gives you, and he expects you to do something with them. To him who much is given, much is expected. And, uh, you know, in Luke's version of this parable, everybody gets 10. In Matthew's version, everybody gets different amounts. And so it's kind of two ways of approaching the same idea. Um, in Luke, it's everybody's given an equal amount to demonstrate something different here. But he gives his servants resources to be used on his behalf. He was made king and returned home eventually, just like Jesus is eventually going to come back. And he sent for the servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. He said, what'd you do with my money? The first one came and said, sir, your mina has earned 10 more. That's a thousand percent gain on that mina. And he's, he still sees it as the master's mina. You know, he was using it for some time. He's not taking any credit for it personally. He's kind of like, look at, what your, look at what your stuff did. Look at what it gained. Look at what it produced. And he says, well, Done, my good servant, the master replied. Praise from the master. Praise from the king. What a great honor. Because you've been trustworthy in a very small matter, take charge of ten cities. Well, that's a, that, the, the, what he's given is way out of proportion with what he was originally given. Uh, but it does seem that some of the reward that the king is going to give when he returns is further responsibility, significant roles to play in the age to come. Pretty cool. Well, the second one came and said, sir, your mina has earned five more. Still pretty good. Not quite as much as the first guy, but pretty good. And the master says, you take charge of five cities. And so some servants got a bigger return on what they've been given. And some servants will get more rewards than others. It seems like the reward is going to be somewhat in proportional to the gains we made on what we were given. But then the third one comes along and he said, Sir, here's your mina back. I kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. I wrapped it in a napkin is literally what that says. <laughs> the entire time you were gone, it was safely tucked away inside of a napkin as I went on with my life. You know, I was kind of afraid of you. You're kind of a, a hard ass. You're a hard man. You're a harsh, severe dude. Uh, you take out what you didn't put in. You reap what you didn't sow. I, you're always like stealing other people's crops. I, was, I felt a little nervous, so I just didn't really do anything with your mina. And so instead of coming back with what he should have come back with, which is a return on the investment, he comes back with excuses, he comes back with lies, and he comes back with accusations toward the king. Not the guy you want to hurl accusations at. 
It's almost like he didn't even think the guy was coming back. It's like, yeah, okay, I was given this, whatever. He's treating what he was given with disdain, with contempt. And he's like, whatever, wrap it up, stick it over here, and then just go on with my life. And then the guy shows up and he's like, whoa. And he starts lying and making excuses and hurling accusations. His own master replied, I'll judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. Okay, you know I'm a hard man. If I'm such a harsh dude, taking out what I didn't put in, reaping what I did not sow, then why didn't you at least put my money on deposit so that when I came back, I could have collected it with interest? That's not true at all. You just didn't do anything with it. And if, if you're so afraid of me, why don't you just at least take it down to the money lenders and see what they could get with it? They could probably get a little something back. You know, you did less than the bare minimum. You did nothing. And so when we look at this and we ask, what did this guy do that was so wicked? The answer is nothing. Absolutely nothing. And I wonder how many Christians, how many of the king's servants, how are they using their physical abilities, their intelligence, their ingenuity, their spiritual gifts that they've been given? What use are they making of this incredibly valuable, these resources that the king has given you? He said he's coming back. You know, some Christians might be like, well, you know, I, um, I, I took those incredible athletic abilities that you gave me and the strong body that you gave me, and I went out and I worked really hard and I became the best soccer player I possibly could for your glory, Lord. And I worked so hard, and I was all city, and we won all kinds of championships, and I have 19 trophies. And God's like, what am I supposed to do with 19 soccer trophies? <laughs> what about your teammates? Your teammates are going to hell. Why didn't you tell them that I'm coming back? Why is it that you're so into your, your sports and you never had time to go to home church? You know, you're so busy working on your ball handling skills. You don't know where anything's at in your word and your ministry skills are terrible. What about that? What about something that matters? Something that's going to last into the next age? Did you think about that? What did you do with the intelligence I gave you? Another person's like, well, man, I studied so hard. I, I studied 100 hours a week, and I became a doctor. And I, can, I, I heal people's bodies, and I do it all for your glory, Lord. And God's like, that's great. But, you know, you're so worried about people's physical lives. What about their spiritual lives? What about their souls? You prolong their body for a couple of years only so they could die and go to hell? What about the investment in eternity? Okay, the medical stuff, yeah, that's great. But if you couldn't do that and the other thing, why did you give up on the thing that was most important? Another guy's like, oh, I took the ingenuity, the people skills that you gave me, and I started a business a chain of hamburger restaurants, <laughs> cowboy-themed. <laughs> it's called Yeehaw Burgers. 
We have eight locations around the greater Columbus area. And I did it all for your glory, Lord. And God's like, what am I supposed to do with a chain of burger restaurants? I own the cattle on a thousand hills. Why didn't you think more about your spiritual life? And he says, you wicked servant. Wicked for doing nothing? Yeah, actually. Yeah. It was so much on the line. You took what I'd given you, used it for yourself, to live a life of comfort, fame for you, glory for you in this life. What a fool. And he says, take his mind away. Give it to that one that had 10 minus. God is the kind of God that wants to channel his resources into people who appreciate them. Since the eyes of the Lord are roaming throughout the earth, looking for someone whose heart is completely his, that he may support him. So he says, give it to the other guy. I like what he does with the stuff that I give him. And they're like, sir, he already has 10. And he's like, I tell you, everyone who has, more will be given. But as for the one who has nothing, even what they have will be taken away. A principle that he's repeated in different words throughout the book of Luke about the last being first and the greatest being the least and whoever has, to more will be given. That's the way it is in spiritual life. Use it or lose it. If you're not growing, you're dying spiritually. And what God is calling on you to do is to take the light that he's given you. You don't know how much you have left. And to use it as much as possible for his glory and to accomplish the mission that he's given us using his resources. That's what God's called you to do. That's what I'm trying to do with my life. I'm trying to invest it as much as I possibly can into eternal things, like we talked about a few weeks ago in Luke chapter 16. And now it doesn't mean that just go, go, go 100% of the time. It means rest. It means it means leisure, it means relationship building, but it means it's all adding up to a picture of investing what God has given you with our eyes on that end goal of when the king returns. Well, what about the enemies? What about his subjects that didn't want him to be king? This would be non-Christians. What's he say? He says, to those enemies of mine who didn't want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. It's the doctrine of hell, which we've studied also several times in the book of Luke. People are like, I just follow the teachings of Jesus. Okay, what about this one? He taught on hell more than anybody. It's the judgment. He will execute judgment. He will personally oversee that judgment when he comes back. So people I don't want to be in this parable would be number one, these guys... And number two, the do-nothing servant. I hope you feel the same way. Number one can be solved pretty easily by actually coming into a relationship with Christ, by becoming his servant, by being adopted into his family, into his household. That's what Christ came to do, to pay for sins so that you can pass out of death and into eternal life and know you're never going to go to hell, that you're going to spend eternity with him. 
The do-nothing servant? Well, maybe we can talk more in our Q&A a a little bit later about this, but we need to keep our focus on what, what is my life adding up to from the perspective of eternity? That's where you need to keep your focus. Doesn't mean you can't do this or that, or, but it's, it's the, the big picture. You know, people are like, well, what about, you know, it, it, the big picture is what we're talking about here. What is this adding up to? And am I living my life in, in light of the reality that Christ is coming back? I think there's going to be a lot of Christians when we get there that are going to realize they wasted their lives on the world. And what Jesus is saying, and what I'm saying tonight is don't waste your life. In the words of Chuck Smith, a little rhyme that stuck with him, that stuck with me, only one life will soon be passed, and only what's done for Christ will last. That's all that's going to last when it comes to the final judgment, when it comes to eternity. And we need to consider that as we consider how to spend our lives. You're the one that's going to have to answer for your life. I hope you realize that. Not me, not anybody else here in this room. And so I want to make sure the full weight of responsibility is resting on you for your decisions. You're not a victim. You're a choosing agent. There's no excuses. He's going to cut right through your excuses like he did with that do-nothing servant. And the thing is, he wants to get behind you to give you his resources and to guide you into serving him. He's more committed to that than you are. But what he's got to see is some willingness and some initiative on your part in response to his initiative and willingness. And that brings us to this verse. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead going up, up, up to Jerusalem, the long 17 or mile so climb from Jericho up toward Jerusalem. And I think a map is helpful here. There's a lot of events from the different gospels that uh, no gospel writer had the space to include them all. They only had so much room on their scroll. And so I thought it'd be helpful to kind of just give you the big picture of these final days of Jesus as he heads into Jerusalem. We were at Jericho last week and at the beginning of this week, and he's headed up this, this climb here southwest to a little town called Bethany where he's going to stay with his friends, Mary and Martha and Lazarus. He's going to stay at their house in Bethany most of this final week of his life and go into the city each day. Bethany's only about a mile and a half east of Jerusalem. What's omitted by Luke is, one, Jesus raises this guy named Lazarus from the dead. I mentioned this a few weeks ago, but that actually happens before his trip to Jericho. He raises Lazarus from the dead. This is a very public event right outside of Jerusalem. Everybody's hearing about it. Everybody's talking about it. Jesus' celebrity just shoots through the roof after this happens. Their messianic expectations shoot through the roof. And as a result, plans are hatched by the religious leaders to kill him. It says from that time on, the Jewish leaders began to plot Jesus' death. And so they go into like, like extra vigorous planning to kill Jesus. Jesus withdraws at this point up north to a city called Ephraim, a little village called Ephraim, where he's going to hide out just for a little while. What he's going to do here has to happen at Passover, a huge festival that everybody comes to Jerusalem for. And so he's got to just give it a little bit more time. So he hangs out up in Ephraim. And as Passover approaches, John tells us that it was now almost time for the Jewish Passover celebration, one of the two biggest festivals of the year. This is the big spring festival where everybody comes to Jerusalem. And many people from all over the country arrived in Jerusalem several days early so they could go through the purification ceremony before Passover began. 
Yeah, there were religious rituals associated with Passover. Josephus tells us that many people, you know, he, he, he tells about one Passover in the 60s AD, so just a couple of decades after this. He says 2.7 million people showed up to do Passover. And that's just the ones that were eligible, not the, uh, you know, the foreigners and things like that. They weren't eligible for it. Just, just, you know, so Josephus, he's probably exaggerating some, but still, that's a lot of people descending on this city. They kept looking for Jesus, but as they stood around in the temple, they said to each other, what do you think? He won't come for Passover, will he? There's a lot of buzz here about Jesus, and is he going to show up? Is he going to have the nerve to show his face here? Especially since the leading priests and Pharisees had publicly ordered that anyone seeing Jesus must report it immediately so that they could arrest him. Yeah, they were worried about a riot breaking out. There were so many people in town and so many people had heard of Jesus and they were looking for a king to throw off Rome. The leaders, the Jewish leaders there in Jerusalem, they had to keep order. If there was a riot that broke out, Rome would send their army down and you did not want to have a Roman army sent to your city. In fact, a riot is going to break out about close to 40 years after this and they level Jerusalem. They tear it down to the ground. And so they've got everything on lockdown. You know, it's like, a, it's like a code orange Jesus watch level. You know, they're patting people down. They're looking under the camel humps and stuff to make sure <laughs> nobody's sneaking Jesus into this city. We got to have order here. This would really have been a security nightmare. There were so many people coming to Jerusalem. Well, Jesus finally decides it's time to move. So he goes down. Somehow he ends up back down through Jericho like we read last week. He makes his way up to Bethany. And when he gets to Bethany, he arrives on Saturday, probably in the evening after Passover. Not exactly sure how the travel schedule worked out. But he also gets anointed by Mary that night, an event recorded in the other three Gospels, a pretty, pretty famous event, anointed for his burial, as it turns out in hindsight. But before he arrived in Bethany, he sent two disciples on a mission, a mission that Luke narrates for us. Here Jesus is gearing up for his final week. And he says, as he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there which no one has ever ridden. Okay, so this is the foal of a donkey. So you got a donkey, and then you have a baby donkey that's never been written. Ridden, and Jesus says, you know what I need right now? A baby donkey. <laughs> that's the only thing that could make this final week perfect. <laughs> and so they go into this village, probably Bethphage, and there's a colt tied up there, Jesus says. You're going to find it. No one's ever ridden on it. Untie it and bring it here. And they're like, so we're just supposed to steal the donkey? What if they ask? And he says, if anyone asks you, why are you untying that colt? Just say, the Lord needs it. <laughs> okay, don't try this at home. I don't know how he knew this. So those who were sent ahead went and they, they found it, just like he told them. He's completely in control of the events of this final week. They walk in, there's a baby donkey, there's like a young donkey tied up. 
clearly unbroken. No one's ever ridden it before. The mom is right there of the donkey. And so they start untying it. <laughs> and as they're untying it, the owners ask them, why are you untying my colt? The Lord needs it. <laughs> and apparently they gave it to him. They gave him the mom and the, and the young donkey. They took it back to Bethany. They brought it to Jesus. They throw their cloaks on the colt and they put Jesus on it. Now, an, a, a donkey that's never been ridden before, that would not usually be a very pleasant experience. You kind of have to break them in, you know, get them used to being ridden. And Jesus just hops right on. He's able to calm the, the colt. And just to give you a sense of the geography here, so here you have on the left, this is Jerusalem. That's where he's headed. You can see in the northeast corner of Jerusalem on this map, that's the Temple Mount. The Temple Mount. And it's actually, it was originally just kind of like a, a, a mountain that they built a wall around and just filled it in with dirt. So it's basically this big high place with retaining walls on all four sides, but that's where they built their temple. It's on the east side of the city. That's the side Jesus was coming in from because Bethphage and Bethany, they were on the other side of the Mount of Olives. And uh, you can see there's a drop from the top, to the, bottom, the top of the Mount of Olives to the bottom of that valley. That's a 240-meter drop. That's like 750 feet climb from the bottom to the top and then back down again. And uh, the Mount of Olives, that's that ridge right across here where Jesus is going to come in here. He's going to come over that hill and he's going to come right down the hill, right down into the big gate on the east side of the temple. That's how he's going to approach the city. In fact, John tells us that the next day, the news that Jesus was on the way to Jerusalem swept through the city. So people in Jerusalem hear about this and they come out, they take their, their palm branches and they went down the road to meet him. So there's there's just throngs of pilgrims coming out of the city. There's also the people Jesus had brought with him. And they're meeting here on the Mount of Olives in a huge parade, welcoming the king. Here's the view that Jesus would have had looking down from the top of the Mount of Olives. This is the view. This is the temple. Five football fields by five football fields. You could fit 25 football fields into that. It's huge. And he would have been coming down this hill, headed right for that door, right in the center of the temple area. And that whole hill would have been lined with pilgrims rejoicing at the coming of the king. Well, as he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road too, so they also laid their cloaks out. And when he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Everybody's shouting. Everybody's rejoicing. And you know, when we think Palm Sunday, okay, this is where we get Palm Sunday from. It's like this, oh, hey, I'm Jesus. Oh, yeah. Everybody's waving palm branches. It's like, welcome to Hawaii. (laughs) We're all so placid. Jesus is always the guy with the glowing head in these things. Really, this was more like a political demonstration. This would have been tense. This would have been edgy. You know, you think about a picture like this. This is a political demonstration from a couple years ago in Cairo. You can see the, uh, the police all lined up there. 
Things are tense. Riots could break out at any moment. The people are calling for revolution. They're calling for a new king. You think about the background on this. First of all, the palm branches. This was a sign of their rebellion. There was a big Jewish revolt in the 160s BC called the Maccabean Revolt. At that revolt, when they threw off the Greek empire that was ruling over them at the time, they waved palm branches in celebration. They even, they, they minted coins that had palm branches on them. 30 years after the event that we're reading here tonight, 30 year, th- about 35 years after the crucifixion of Christ, there's another revolt in the late 60s. They mint coins again that have palm branches on them. 70 years after that, in the 130s AD, the Bar Kokhba revolt, they mint these, we've actually found coins with these palm branches on them from that revolution as well. This was the sign of revolution. This was controversial. This is edgy. Like, you know, in the Hunger Games, they have that mocking J symbol. It's kind of like the symbol of revolt against the evil empire. That's really what the, the palm branch was for them. The spreading the cloaks on the road, that's what they did for royalty, for, for dignitaries. They're saying, you're our king. They were shouting, blessed be the king who comes in the name of the Lord. From Psalm 118, a psalm about King Messiah. They were also shouting out Hosanna and other accounts of this, which means save us now. Save us now, Hosanna. They want salvation, and they want it now, and they were thinking in the political sense of the word. The donkey colt, what's the deal with that? You know, when you think about a king riding into his capital city, you know, you think about riding on a big, tall, majestic steed, you know, where you kind of got to get your foot up in the stirrup and then swing your leg over and you're way up high and you're looking down on everyone. Instead, Jesus is riding in on this majestic beast. (laughs) A young one, too, not even like a full-grown one. You know, this is the sort of thing where, you know, you get on this guy and you're probably going to actually be shorter. (laughs) He probably had to, like, kind of hold his heels up to keep him from dragging on the ground. What's the deal with this? Riding in on a, a young donkey... Well, this is in fulfillment. This is also a a loaded act that Jesus is doing here. In fulfillment of Zechariah 9, a a fulfillment they didn't really even fully understand until later. But in Zechariah 9, it says, Rejoice, O people of Zion, that's Jerusalem. Shout in triumph, O people of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He's righteous and victorious, yet he's riding on a Yet he is humble, riding on a donkey, on a donkey's colt. A passage about King Messiah. And he says, he's coming to you, Jerusalem. He's your king, and he's righteous and victorious. And he's on a donkey's colt, is what Zechariah foretold hundreds and hundreds of years before the time of Christ. But it gets better if you read on. Look at the next verse. You've got to read the whole prophecy. He says, I'll remove the battle chariots from Israel and the war horses from Jerusalem. No more war. I'll destroy all the weapons used in battle. And your king will bring peace to the nations, not just to rule over Israel, but over the nations. His realm will stretch from sea to sea. Why? Because of the covenant I made with you Sealed with blood. 
what sort of a king is this? What sort of a covenant is he talking about? Where is this blood going to come from? What Zachariah's readers didn't understand, what Jesus' disciples didn't understand either, is this would be the blood of the king. That's how he would make this covenant, this agreement with the people. He would seal the deal with his own blood. And what's the result? I will free your prisoners from death in a waterless dungeon. Freedom from death is what this blood will purchase, what this covenant will ensure. And on that day, the Lord their God will rescue his people just as a shepherd rescues his sheep. What a cool prophecy about the king riding in on the donkey's colt, purchasing a covenant with blood to rescue from death, to rule the nations and bring peace forever, and to gather his people like a shepherd gathers his sheep. What a powerful and intimate picture of the king to come. Jesus is fulfilling this prophecy right here, one of many that he fulfilled. The Pharisees were picking up what he was laying down. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd, they, they march up to Jesus in the middle of this procession and they say, teacher, rebuke your disciples. Don't you hear what they're saying? And Jesus is like, yeah, I do. And I tell you, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. This is the day of destiny. The day that was predicted before the foundations of the world. All of creation has been marching toward this moment. And if they don't shout it, the stones and the trees are going to break forth in chorus. You can't stop this. This was foreordained from before the beginnings of the world. And now destiny, God's entire plan of salvation, is funneling down toward a pinpoint here in Jerusalem. Passover week, 33 AD. And then something remarkable happens. As Jesus looks down on the city of Jerusalem, as he looks at all the people, as he thinks about the many thousands of years of God's plan and the over a thousand years that they'd lived in this city, it says that he approached Jerusalem and saw the city and he wept over it. you could zoom in on the face of Jesus on this triumphant day, you'd see tears streaming down his face, weeping. And he said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace. But now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you. He sees it in the future, only 40 years away, when your enemies, the Romans, will build an embankment against you, and they'll encircle you, and they'll hem you in on every side. And they will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. And they will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Predicting an event in 70 AD when the Romans would surround the city because of a revolt. And they would tear that city down to the ground. And Jesus weeps because he realizes if you had just responded to me, that wouldn't have had to happen. 
You did not recognize the time of your visitation, he says. Zechariah 9 wasn't the only prophecy Jesus fulfilled on that day. There are many other prophecies he fulfilled. One remarkable one from Daniel chapter 9, which predicts the coming of King Messiah, a prediction made in the 500s B.C., around 540 B.C., predicts the very year of Messiah's entry into Jerusalem, as well as several key details about his life and career. Some argue that that prophecy is so precise it predicts the very week that Jesus rode into Jerusalem. I don't have time to go into that argument to show you that prophecy. It would take most of the night. But what we do have is we have a free book that has a whole chapter devoted to it that will explain it. If you're skeptical, then you should feel even more obligated to read that chapter to see the evidence from predictive prophecy. He said, you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Let's draw a few conclusions. The king has arrived at his capital city. He has arrived at long last. The fulfillment not just of his ministry, but of over a thousand years of predictions in the Old Testament. A planning that had taken place before the foundations of the world from eternity past. He's arrived for the final week of his life. For the week that would end in his death. He's come to make a covenant sealed with blood to set us free from death, according to Zechariah chapter 9. Not the king they were looking for, but this was the plan that God had set in motion. And while the king is away right now, according to that parable, he wants you to work for him using his resources until he gets back and when he'll call every single person to account for what they did while he was gone. And when he comes back, he will ride into Jerusalem again one day. That's not the last time he's going to ride in. The next time it won't be on a colt, the foal of a donkey, though. It'll be on the most majestic horse you've ever seen at the second coming of Christ. Although you won't really notice the horse or the armies of heaven that will be behind him because on that day your eyes are going to be on the one at the front of the procession the one who's come finally to set up his kingdom in its fullness the one who's come not to die but to live and to give eternal life and to reward those who have faithfully served him it's going to be a good day yeah lord you are sovereign over human history You are the humble king who had every right to come and claim what was rightfully yours, but instead you humbled yourself to the point of death on a cross so that you could seal that covenant with your blood to purchase us from death. Thank you, God, that because you did that, that when you come a second time, there's going to be so many adopted, forgiven people who can be part of that new kingdom that you're going to set up, that new age that you're going to set up. Pray that you'd help us not to get distracted. By this world, God is so good at distracting us and that we can keep our sight set on eternity and that day when you show up and you say, well done, good and faithful servant. Amen. This study was recorded at Xenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.